if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. Hebrews 2, verse 16. We looked at the exposition of this text this morning. And as we got to the top of the hour, I had just started to get to the application. So congratulations, you're getting the application tonight. Verse 16, we read these words, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring, the seed of Abraham. And from this passage, what we drew out from the passage was not only this idea of election, but specifically the idea of adoption, which has been a dominant theme of this entire passage, that those of faith, that would be those that are the seed or the offspring, the children of Abraham, Those are the adopted ones, the ones that verse 10, we're told the Father brings many sons to glory, Uh, the ones that Jesus calls brother, Uh, the one that we read in verse 13, that are called the children of God that have been given to Jesus. This is all speaking of this idea of adoption. And specifically, what we are told in the text is, is that Jesus helps those that are adopted in him. So the help that is mentioned here, and what that help is, is that grasping or that taking and deliverance of that one. That is the help that is offered, is a delivering help. Those are the ones that he helps. And so that brings us to this question then, What are the benefits of this glorious doctrine of adoption? Now, the doctrine of adoption could take up volumes and volumes of writing, and in fact it has. Sinclair Ferguson calls the doctrine of adoption the all-encompassing phrase or the word of salvation itself. There are a couple of things that we have to understand about this idea of adoption is the first thing I want to draw our attention to is that it is an eternal choice of God. It is an eternal choice of God. Adoption itself is. It's not something that God just one day decides to bestow upon people, but it is an eternal choice of God. We see in Psalm 103, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. This is speaking of an eternal love that is eternally set upon a people, which means this, as if it is a choice in eternity... What we experience is in time. God is not bound by time. God is not within time. He's not held by time. But everything God does is an eternal 
thing. It's an eternal choice. So then it means this, is your adoption is not based upon anything you did to deserve it, nor is your adoption based on anything that may disqualify you from it. And that's the glorious truth of adoption. If it is an eternal choice of God, not only is there nothing you can do to earn it, but there's nothing you can do that disqualifies you when you have been adopted. It is purely of the Lord. And just consider the implications of this eternal love that is everlasting to everlasting. The great theologian Gerhardus Voss says this, summarizing what he says, you never have to worry about God stopping his love for you because he never started. Because then it was an eternal love upon you. God didn't start to love you, but in eternity he loved you. It was set upon you everlasting to everlasting, and it cannot be removed from you. He will never cease to love those on whom he has placed an eternal love upon. Consider how John relates this to our adoption in 1 John chapter 3. And one of the clear statements on adoption and God's love he says it almost in exclamatory or as if it's, it's unbelief in which he states this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's almost as if he can't comprehend. What kind of love is it? It's God... The Father, all-holy, perfect, creator of all things, makes us his children. Liberalism in the early 1900s began to adopt, and liberalism, speaking of uh, theological liberalism, began to adopt the universal fatherhood of God over all mankind. Perhaps you've heard those statements. We're all children of God. That's not what the Bible tells us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we are adopted. We, sinful, rebellious, corrupt individuals, are adopted into his family. What an amazing statement that this is an eternal choice. But I love the language of 1 John that it is the Father has given us this love. Because here's the reality of this eternal choice of God. If I am called a child of God, If you are a son or daughter of God and he is your father, how do you then cope with experiences in life in the providence of your father? My father knows best. 
That's how you deal with it. My Father has set His love on me in eternity and adopted me and made Him, myself, a child of His. And if I'm experiencing turmoil, if I'm experiencing trials, if I experience suffering, it doesn't mean I like it, but it can mean this, is that I can say, my Father knows what's best for me. I'm His child. He gave his only begotten son to die for me. He chose me in eternity. And it was out of his love that is everlasting to everlasting. My father knows what's best for me. Number one benefit is this, is his adoption is an eternal choice. And the second thing is, is that it is immutable. It cannot be changed If he has called you to be a son or daughter of his, that calling is irrevocable. It is irrevocable. You see statements that speak of the nature of God and his unchangeableness. We we say his immutability. He cannot mutate. He cannot change. We read this in Numbers chapter 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. That is to say that God is immutable, and if God has called you, he will not change his mind. He won't call you son, he won't call you daughter today, and tomorrow call you a serpent. If he has called you son or daughter in Christ, that is an unchanging promise. That is a declaration that cannot change because God cannot change. If God changed, he wouldn't be God. The author of Hebrews makes this same point in chapter 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, listen to it, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God is unchangeable. If he has called you, it is not only an eternal choice, but it is an immutable, unchangeable choice that cannot ever be affected. That's good reason, I mean, good, good news, because there are certainly a lot of reasons that I could give God to cast me from his presence. But he won't. He won't because he's called me, and he never will. There's another th- aspect of this that's so helpful. God, in fact, does help those whom he called. And that's what our passage says. He doesn't help angels, but he helps the seed of Abraham. And I want to look at this from a, maybe a slightly different angle. In Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. So we can have one view of this, is that in providence, when we experience suffering, we can say, my father knows what's best. But do you know why you can say that? Because he's there with you. 
His grace is what enables you to say, my father knows what's best. How is it that Job loses everything? And when he loses everything, he falls down and worships God. Well, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Job was brokenhearted more than I could imagine. Job was brokenhearted more than Job could handle, but the Lord was near the brokenhearted because Job was a child of his. His presence is always with you. You know, we, we talk about often how our world has changed, and it certainly has changed. There's certainly a hatred towards Christ, whereas before it may have been buried by the unbelieving people of this world. It's now open. It's, it's out there. Christians are mocked. You see it. We see it. And it's just out there. And it seems like there's even somewhat of a targeting now taking place with Christians. I don't... So if you saw what PayPal released yesterday, then immediately backtracked that if they catch certain things on your social media, they can fine you. There was such an uproar against that, that they backtracked that. That's, that's the world we, we, now, we now live in. You know, at the, I was at the Puritan Conference, and they... They always do these Q&As at, at these conferences, and I love, the, I love the question and answer time. That's my favorite time. And they brought out John Piper and John MacArthur to do the Q&A, which I thought was strange because when I think of Puritan, I, I don't think of John MacArthur or John Piper so much. I think of like someone like Joel Beakey if we're talking about Puritans, but that's who they brought out. And I, it made sense after a while. MacArthur's been in the ministry for 53 years in the same pulpit, John Piper was in the same pulpit for over 30 plus years. They went through many battles together, contending for the faith over the years. And it was interesting. One of the questions was, is how do you prepare your congregation for the climate that we live in? And MacArthur went off for almost 10 minutes about the things that we see. You think about children and the, the hormones and all of those things that are taking place in hospitals that are targeting our children. It's, it's horrendous. It's, it's so horrendous, I don't even want to talk about it. And that's, that's the reality of our world today, isn't it? You think about all of the abortions, and the abortions in California have been expedited through new legislation, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of these things. And then it came to Piper, and Piper said... What I thought was such great pastoral wisdom. He said, yes, that's true. We need to address those things. We need to be aware of those things. But we can't stop there. We have to know, how do I live now with these things? You see, pastors can go, and I see this all the time, they can go on one side of this. We don't talk about those things. We just talk about the gospel. And then others, that that's all they talk about. And that becomes their ministry. Both, I think, are on the fanatical side. Rather, we should look at what God's Word says. If you look at First Peter chapter 4, it gives us some instruction. In verse 12, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Okay, so this is Peter saying, look, you know things are bad. Peter doesn't have to lay it out. They already know. They're already experiencing persecution. And he deals with it. They're being reviled. They're being mocked. He knows that. Okay. What do I do with that now? Look what he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad with when His glory is revealed. So the thing that gets us through these fiery trials that come upon the church is that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And for that reason, we can rejoice even in the midst of fiery trials that come upon us. So we know that we face trials. We know that we face suffering. We know that we're going to face even maybe persecution of varying degrees. But what we have faced is very little compared to places like India, or you look at all of these uh, other uh, Middle East countries where Christians can't even come out and celebrate their baptism. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You face fiery trials? You're a child of God? You take this to the bank. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I would say that is a benefit of your adoption. That the Lord covers His own. There's a fourth benefit of adoption. And that is His adoption gives us assurance. When you read the Confession of Faith, it explicitly says that Christ is the grounds of our assurance... But then it goes on to say that the inner testimony of the Spirit in our affections is a secondary aspect of our assurance. Okay, so what is the grounds of our assurance is Christ. But as the confession says, there's a secondary aspect, and that is the work of the Spirit in your life. How does the Scripture itself describe this? I want you to notice in Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, how Paul lays this out. He says, and we know, just pause there, there is something we can know. Read 1 John, and we know over and over and over again. This is something we can know. If you are in Christ, you are adopted and a child of God, you may know this. This is yours to know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are 
Here it is, called according to his purpose, and this is that golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You may know this. And notice how it's tied to those of being Christ, our elder brother. Now, how do we know this? Well, Paul has already talked about the Spirit of God witnessing with our spirit. In just a few verses prior, we read this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. In other words, with your adoption, you receive the spirit of adoption as a son of God by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is it. Here's that inner testimony that the confession speaks of, that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It always perplexed me that in the confession, both in the Westminster Confession, the 1689, it speaks of an infallible assurance. That you can have an infallible assurance. And I always struggled with that phrase, infallible assurance, because the confession then goes on later to say that our, our assurance seems to kind of go like this. But, what does it say here? The Spirit actually testifies with our spirit. That's something that God does in His children. Look what it says. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. Paul writes about it in a similar way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. Look at how he describes this inner testimony of adoption. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God has written his testimony. You are the letter from Christ written on your heart. The Spirit does that. The Spirit cries in you. The Spirit works in that you may cry out, Abba, Father, that you may know that you are a child of God, that God is working all things, and that he has written this, not on stone, but on your heart. Think about the example of the saints as a means of assurance of adoption. I think of, we referenced Abraham this morning because the text dealt with with Abraham, but again, if you look at at Romans in chapter 4 and verse 18, it says this, in hope he believed against hope. Pause. Adoption Child of God, being called by God, brought in by faith. For Abraham, it was a hope against hope. 
Abraham is there with his father, Terah, who was teaching pagan Sunday school. And God comes and reveals himself to Abraham and says, I want you to leave all of your family. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. Abraham doesn't say, well, wh- where, where are you, wh- what land? Can you tell me a little bit about this? No, it was a hope against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You remember when Sarah laughed, right? Abraham laughed. Hope against hope. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen, here it is. This is our assurance right here is this, is that fully convinced. He was fully convinced. If you are the offspring of Abraham, if you are a child of God, adopted through the Lord Jesus Christ, he is your elder brother, you can be fully convinced as Abraham was. I think this is what the confession means when it says an infallible assurance that we can have. There's another aspect of this is our adoption being related to our assurance. You notice in Scripture what the effects of the faith is. The effects of faith that we're told in Ephesians 3.12 that we can have confidence. In Hebrews 10.20, verse 10.22, it says we may have a full assurance. In 1 Peter 1.8, we're told that we can have an unspeakable joy. Those are the effects of our faith. You know, Scripture calls us to self-examination, and we will look at that in a second, but you just have to ask, is the nature of my faith confidence? And it can only be confident if you're rooted in Christ, because if you mix works in there, guess what happens to your confidence? It's gone. You won't have any confidence in your works. You won't have any confidence in your own ability Because your own ability will testify against you. It's called your conscience. This is why the Reformers called the law of God a mirror. Because when we look in the mirror, we go, Ah, I'm not quite matching up to the way I, I perceive myself. Is there a full assurance, that infallible assurance of your adoption... Is there an unspeakable joy? And and here's where it's particularly helpful that we understand the joy that we have is that the joy we have is a joy that cannot change. Yeah, our joy might ebb and flow, but the unspeakable joy is a joy that cannot be removed. Let me prove it to you. John chapter 16, 
Jesus says, so also, in verse 22, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That is something that the world cannot beat out of you, is your joy. And it's because it's deposited into your heart by Christ, that Christ has given it to you. I mean, you, you know this if you've gone through suffering, but yet you somehow made it through it. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and He sustains you through it. How did you get through that difficult time? Because he sustained you. Our adoption is directly related to our assurance because it is a legal adoption. We move from being children of wrath, children of the devil, to being children of God. The doctrine of adoption affects our assurance. But there's something else here that we have to be aware of And that is, this is of a false assurance. That there's a false assurance many people live their whole lives with. Believing that they are a child of God when the Lord does not know them. You think of what Jesus says in these haunting words. And you know them, they're familiar to all of us. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did Judas call Jesus Lord, Did Judas not do many works in the name of the Lord? Did Judas not prophesy in the name of the Lord? Of course, we look at Judas's treachery. But just look at the life of Judas. Let's just say hypothetically, Judas follows Jesus for... Uh, two years and six months, and then tragically is taken. Everyone would be mourning, and at his funeral, they would say, this was a man that knew the Lord. Look what he did. He prophesied in Jesus' name. He walked with Jesus. He sat at Jesus' feet. He cast out demons. He did many things in Jesus' name. Maybe even perhaps Judas, as he follows Jesus himself, had some sort of assurance that he was a true disciple of Christ for a period of time until he realized the tribulation of this world was greater and not worth suffering for the cause of Christ. Jesus says, on that day, many many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Jesus says, and then I, will I declare to them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. 
You, you can have an assurance, an infallible assurance that is talked about, but there's also a false assurance many have. And Jesus identifies it here. I think this is why sometimes we, we get these little glimpses in Scripture that, that make us pause for a second. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This is a call to self-examination. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will, you will never fail. That's a frightening thought. Now, this isn't to cause anyone to doubt their assurance. It's for us to consider the question and ask the question, are we adopted? Do we know the Father through the Son? Have we been called? And have we experienced in time His eternal call and eternal love that has been put on us? How do we question this? You think of what we read in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for, this is strive for, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, what is the character of our life? The bouncing verse was Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, that Jesus helps the children of Abraham. We looked at Abraham this morning, briefly, and we asked the question, do we, we, we reflect a life like Abraham's? And I brought out the, the fact that Abraham lied concerning his wife twice at different points in his life. But yet, when you look at the trajectory of Abraham's life, what was it? It was striving for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. You think about David. It is easy to pick on David, isn't it? I mean, he murdered a guy, and he has an adulterous affair, and we can look at his mess-ups with his parenting. But here's the reality with David. And just ask yourself in this, this question. Honestly, was David in a position to murder people and have adulterous affairs unchecked as much as he wanted? Kind of. That was not the trajectory of his life, was it? It wasn't. His life was a life of striving after holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know, look at Peter. 
Again, Peter's one of the guys that he's sometimes easy to pick on. Oh, he denied the Lord. He stepped off of the boat and sunk on the water. I wouldn't have even got off the boat. Peter got off the boat. The point is with Peter is he didn't live a life of perpetual denial of the Lord. When it came down to it, he was hung upside down. He was striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, adoption results in a likeness to the one that adopts us. We used Abraham, but actually, Abraham is not our standard. Abraham's the the attainable goal, if you will. I know that you might think that that sounds boastful to say that we could attain that of Abraham, but the reality is, is Abraham was of a like nature like us. This is why Paul says, imitate me. And oftentimes Paul says, imitate me as I follow Christ. But he doesn't always say that. Sometimes he just says, imitate me, and that here is this... Here's Christ, but but then we see Paul and we can aim for all of those areas where he is imitating Christ and, and follow him and imitate that. There is a likeness to the one that adopts us. And this is how we, when we look at where adoption takes place in God's salvific plan for us, it's crucial to see this that God calls those that are His. When He calls them, they're born again. And when they're born again, they're given a new heart, they're given a new mind, they're given new disposition. The result of being born again is that they have faith, they now trust in Jesus, they have a knowledge of Jesus, they ascent, have an ascent to Jesus, and there's a repentance. That is a turning around. I'm not following my own ways, but now I'm, I'm following Christ. So we see it. there's a call. There's born again. That After born again, there's faith. There's repentance. And upon those things, we are justified. And that means this. We're declared no longer guilty. We've been forgiven of our sins. God says that you are righteous because He has imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. And then what flows out of our justification, which means you're not guilty, that's a, a legal standing, there's, an illegal, there's a legal adoption that takes place where you move from being a child of Satan to a child of God, and that is a legal adoption that God makes from you, and what flows out of adoption? Sanctification. What is sanctification? That is this, that you are growing in your holiness day by day. That you are growing in Christ's likeness. Why? Because you've been adopted, Christ dwells in you. And out of Christ flows righteousness. Remember, we talk about Christ in us for justification or Christ for us for justification and Christ in us for sanctification. 
that work of Christ in the inner man is this, is that any time that old Adam creeps his head out, we beat him down. Anytime the old nature creeps up, we slap him around and say, you're no longer here. We're striving for that Christ-likeness, that holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So when we think about these verses of a false assurance of an adoption, we also can, in this secondary look at the inner work of the Spirit in our lives, ask the question, do I know Christ? Now, we we may have doubts at time with our assurance, but we have to understand something about uh, doubt. Doubt is not the controlling normative of the Christian life. Lewis Burkhoff wrote a wonderful book called, it's just called The Assurance of Faith. And he says this, in one of his chapters, he says, The Bible certainly does not regard a state of doubt as the normal condition of believers. I remember when R.C. Sproul got towards the end of his life, and someone had asked him, Do you ever doubt And he said, without hesitation, he said, I haven't doubted my salvation in a long time. I I can't remember the last time. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but that's basically what he said. I I haven't doubted my faith in years. You think of John Bunyan, that towering figure of a Puritan. In Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, his autobiography, he speaks about a season that he went through after coming to Christ where he was, it was like he was in bondage to doubt. And you think about how he writes about Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and the the burden that's upon his back that was upon Bunyan himself, and when Bunyan gets to several months of this struggle, he says, "I, I was set free. Or you think of Luther, how he would literally beat his body because he had no assurance. But he says that when he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it was as if the gates of heaven opened and he entered therein. There's an assurance we can have of our faith. And if we struggle with it, Here's the balm of Gilead. Here's the blood of Christ to put on our soul is this. When we doubt, we don't look within. We look to the cross of Christ. And we say that there in Christ, my sins have been taken. And he has given me his righteousness. And Christ is the foundation that we can say and know that we can know that we are a child of God when we look to Christ. Because in Him, we are. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonderful doctrine of of adoption and the correlating doctrine of assurance that we can know that we are Your children because of Christ. 
I pray, Father, that we would reflect upon these wonderful benefits that our adoption is an eternal choice, that it is an immutable choice, and that you help us, and that this gives us assurance. We thank you, Father, for this assurance of faith that we may have in Christ and him alone, and the comfort we have from adoption. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.